in Hebrews 11, we come to the story of Moses today. We've been talking for several weeks now about how these great stories of men and women of faith found in Hebrews 11 is meant to strengthen and encourage our faith. And so this morning, we're going to dive right into it and look at the Moses of faith. Father, we ask that your spirit would grant us spiritual eyes to see, hearts that would truly love you and your word. We're asking for a work this morning done in our hearts and minds, in our lives that can only be accomplished by your spirit to cause us by faith to turn away from fleeting pleasures of sin and to identify with the person of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would grant us wisdom and discernment each in our own lives to know what that looks like, how we ought to respond, even bring up idolatrous things that have been stuff we've been clinging to for too long. Help us today as Pastor Mike mentioned earlier, to surrender afresh to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four considerations for our text today as we look at the life of Moses. So we're going to jump right in. The first is I want you to consider the faith of Moses' parents. Interesting, in Hebrews 11, you see these stories of all these people of faith. And Moses' story actually doesn't start with Moses' faith. It starts with the faith of his parents. You read in verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so the story of Moses begins with the story of faith of his mom and his dad. And so let's do a little let's do a little context here. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 1 or it will be on the screen. We're going to pick up in verse 7 where it says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, that's important, and grew exceedingly strong. These are the days after Joseph had died. So the land was filled with the Israelites. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> Sometimes I just really love the details of the Bible. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives fear God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. 
chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi. It's interesting, by the way. Typically, you, you hear of the, the mom's faith in the Exodus account. It does mention the father here, but Hebrews 11 says it was the faith of both parents. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So mom gets the baby back, took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, with that context, reflect again on verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They weren't afraid of the king's commandment. They knew that the law of the king was in direct opposition to the promise of God. Pharaoh was seeking to eliminate the Israelites, and according to his plan, they would be only one generation away from extinction. But God promise, God's promises opposed Pharaoh's plan. Moses' parents believed that God would ultimately deliver their people. You could say that they probably remember Genesis 46, 2 through 3. It wasn't long after that Joseph died in chapter 46, verse 2 to 3. It said that God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, he said, here I am. And then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. And so unless this God who has constantly been providing a way for his people was a liar and now going to change his character, the parents were right here to have faith and not be afraid of the king's edict. They didn't need to be afraid that the Israelites were going to be wiped away in a single generation because the command of the king went against the promises of God. When Moses was born, this is here in Hebrews chapter 11, that he was a beautiful child. You see in our Exodus account, he was fine or proper. It's actually the same word in Hebrew that's used in Genesis where God approved of all his works in creation. In other words, the parents were taken back by the beauty of this boy's countenance. They saw that he was good. Not a coincidence. It's the same word used when the Lord created and then saw that it was good. This child was created by God and set apart for his purposes. And it drew the thoughts and minds of the parents into a deep consideration of this child. The scriptures don't actually say that Moses' parents received any kind of like divine intervention and revelation regarding Moses, but ultimately none was needed. And that's, a, by the way, a really good encouragement for us today. That huge, momentous, divine revelation is not necessary for us to exercise our faith. Simply remembering the promises of God, acknowledging the presence of God, seeing the hand of God in the things around us and in us is enough for us to respond in obedience. 
For Moses' parents, the countenance of Moses sparked a holy presence, and they recognized a call in this boy's life. It caused them to remember God's promises. They remembered, no doubt, that in spite of great tribulation, God had always cleared a path to preserve and deliver his people. That's the story of how the Israelites even came to Egypt through the work of Joseph. So they weren't afraid of their current circumstance. They took on this special duty, empowered by faith, to protect the child and set him apart for the use of God's glory. Now, history tells us, actually, that the Egyptians would use violent force on any family that went against the command to throw the male infants into the Nile. And so Moses' parents' decision here, if they were to be found out, would cost them their very lives. And even still, they hide Moses for three months by faith. And then Exodus tells us that when they could not hide him any longer, probably because it was becoming known that there was a male child in the home, they sent him off in a basket on the riverbank. They committed him to the providence of God in a new kind of ark. Certainly a tie here linking back to how God preserved Noah and his family on the ark. Now, interestingly enough, you might say, okay, well now are the parents acting out of fear? Now they find out a, a male child is in the home and so, so much for their faith. Now they're acting out in fear and they're throwing the baby in the Nile. But their change of mind to no longer hide Moses in the house was not out of fear, but again, out of faith. They're simply following the leading of the Spirit step by step. They knew step one, God was upon this child. Step two, they didn't need to be afraid to reject the king's command because of the promises of God. Third, they're going to conceal the child as long as they can. Three months, not knowing what would be next. Step four, they're going to put him in a basket and send him on the river because if the people come, they're going to kill him. Step five, they're going to watch and wait and trust God to do what only God can do. Step six, the baby comes back. They're going to nurse the boy for a few years. They're going to pray over him, no doubt. They're going to teach him and show him as, uh, show him as much as they possibly can about who he is and who God is. And then step seven, ultimately, they'll hand him back over to Egypt and trust God and watch and wait. And make no mistake, that latter part, to give Moses back over, is significant. It's one thing to carry a tender infant about three years of age, to be raised, influenced, and disciple, you know, to, to, to take care of him, protect him. It's one thing even to hide him for three months. But to then take that child to be raised and influenced and discipled in an idolatrous, persecuting court was probably more dangerous, especially to his soul and eternal condition, than simply you know, exposing him in the river setting him off to see what happens. And this was a key component of the faith of Moses' parents. They trusted God. That actually was the outworking of their faith. They really, really trusted him. Their outward act of hiding the child was evidence of this internal working of their faith, a faith that trusted God more than it feared a worldly king. They didn't need to fear any command or authority that stood against the promises of God, neither do we. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, David would later say, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So you have all of these kings and rulers and powers and authorities plotting against God and his people. And what does verse 4 say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Moses' parents, like all people who trust in the Lord, know that God's divine hand is always working even through the rage of men and poor kings and kingdoms. So consider the faith of Moses' parents 
that they were not afraid of any power or authority or commandment that stood in opposition to the promises of God. Secondly, look at verse 24 and consider what Moses refused. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughters. Now certainly there is a principle that the faith of those around us, especially our parents, greatly impact us. But remember, the gift of faith doesn't get passed down like genes. Faith faith must come upon each person individually. There comes a point when each child must recognize the life of stewardship that God has called them to. What is their part in his story? What's required of them? They must at some point apply themselves vigorously and diligently to the work of the Lord and his kingdom. It is true that the older you get, the temptation to serve your lusts are going to grow as well. You know, it's, it's certainly my five-year-old daughter, Charlotte, and my three-year-old son, Emerson, have their own temptations. We're like fighting lions that haven't eaten for five days to try, them to, try to get them to not need an iPad or a TV. And we're, we're more on the conservative part of that. And it's like that temptation, that desire, this longing in their heart to just indulge in that is constant. And it seems to be increasing. And certainly the older they get, the more they're exposed to the ways of the world and even the lust of their hearts that are tempted, it's going to increase. And so it's going to be super important for children who are coming of age to recognize that they need to make a decision to follow Jesus. One of the greatest lies of the enemy to young kids is that they have time to get serious later. Especially sometimes for children who grow up in or around the church who might think that their parents' faith or their involvement in the church that their parents are bringing to them constantly will suffice for now. But many have been lulled to sleep by that lie from the devil. Every child has a decision to make just like every adult does. And so Moses, when he grew up, made a decision. And that decision that Hebrews 11 says happened by faith was to be to refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughters. In other words, I want you to notice that the first explicit act of faith for Moses was the refusal of something. His first act of faith was refusing something. Consider his upbringing. I mean, Acts 7 says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. He had the world at his fingertips. Opportunity, influence, power, prestige, riches. He could ultimately be whoever he wanted to be and do essentially whatever he wanted to do. You add to that the pressures and expectations of his position and the people around him. So what does Moses do? By faith, he refuses all of it. It's the first act of all faith, though, isn't it? Refusal. What does our Lord say in Matthew 16, 24? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. Whoever loses his life, though, for my sake, will save it. What is a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? This is what Moses knew a couple thousand years before Jesus even came in the flesh. Refusal. Refusing to find your identity in the world. Refusing to get caught up in the vanity of the world. Refusing to believe that the world revolves around you. Refusing to believe that you can postpone holiness. That first act of faith for everyone is an act of self-denial. 
So he refuses the identity of the world. He refuses his position. He refuses his prestige. All that, all of his potential before him. And what does he do? Verse 25, he chooses rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now this is no small thing because Egypt at the time was one of the richest and most powerful nations in the world. And Moses' position and potential was second to few in this nation. But Moses laid all this to heart. He considered that, and what he found is that none of the enjoyments of this life would last. He found that he would not be happy alone apart from the children of God. He found that he could not find purpose, true purpose, apart from the duty that God had given to him. He found that even the ability to enjoy the things that were good and desirable would actually be stripped away if he refused to live by faith. There's a quote from the Puritan John Owens. This pastor said, Let the things of this world be increased and multiplied into the greatest measures and degrees imaginable. Take money to its absolute full potential and end. Take fame to its absolute full potential and end. It does not alter their kind. They are temporary, fading, and perishing still. I mean, truly, what would Moses actually gain if he stayed in Egypt? If he indulged in everything available to him? Moses knew there was no floating in between one foot with the people of God, one foot with the people of Egypt. If he would cleave to the treasures of Egypt, he would, he knew, be renouncing the people of God. And so there was a decision for this grown man to make. And Moses realized that all the power, prestige, and riches of Egypt were themselves temporary, fading, and perishing. And unto Moses would even be sinful and destructive if he stayed. And here's why. It's not that the power and prestige and riches and enjoyment that were available to Moses were actually inherently sinful. We actually don't know, according to scripture, that he was like sinning or involved in any form of idolatry. But he would have been sinning if he stayed. If he did not make that refusal. That's the kicker. These enjoyments, these entitlements would become sin to him, not in and of themselves, but in his enjoyment of them because... He would no longer be able to enjoy them apart from union with the Egyptians and all their, all their idolatry or without clearly neglecting the persecution and oppression of the people of God. Ultimately, if Moses stayed in Egypt, he would not have been obeying the call from God. And so anything that he enjoyed in his life after that would have been apart from faith. And Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. And so, Moses was out. <laughs> he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Third, consider what Moses embraced. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses noticed a gap between him and the people of God. At that time, these Israelites were the people of God on planet Earth. It was a lowly company of brickmakers. They were enslaved under hard and cruel taskmasters. And ultimately, whoever would belong to the people of God at that point was going to have to cast in his lot among them. And so Moses walked out of power, prestige, position, and walked right into banishment, poverty, and danger. And here's what he did. He looked at the worst of the lot of the people of God, compared it to the best that the world had to offer, and he chose the former. Moses preferred the promises of, of God 
over any present enjoyment. If you go back to John Owens, he later says, The things that we are to lose in houses, lands, possessions, liberty, and life itself, they make an appearance of a desirableness not to be overcome. And the distresses, on the other hand, of a persecuted estate appear very terrible. This is the world's eyes. And if the mind leaves itself under the conduct of its affections in this matter, it will never make a right choice and determination. But faith enables the soul to divest the things on either side of their flattering or frightening appearances and to make a right judgment of them in their proper nature and ends. I mean, to make the decision that Moses made, you have to have faith. You have to. Otherwise, if you're looking at it strictly from a business transaction in the world and you don't understand the invisible things, if you don't see the invisible God, if you haven't tasted and seen the Lord is good, if you don't know the promises of God or believe in them, it's a terrible investment. (laughs) And yet, if you know God, if your eyes are open to the truth, if you're a child of God, to receive anything that the world would have to offer in all of its glory and to reject the people of God is the worst investment. Moses considered what these riches of Egypt were, what they would or could amount to, what might be done with them or attained by them, and he preferred the reproach of Christ above them all. The old desires and affections of his mind that now so clearly stood in competition with the things of God were, as the New Testament would say, crucified. It's like Paul in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, when Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Moses believed that there was a spiritual, satisfying fullness awaiting him, even though he would be under reproach and persecution. And here's why. This is what's important to know. Just as fleeting are the pleasures of sin, just as the fleeting pleasures of sin are temporary, so is the evil which we are called to withstand. All of the lusts of the flesh are temporary, and yet all of the reproach and suffering and brokenness that we have to endure, remember, is also temporary. Moses left that which was temporary to endure great suffering, which would also be temporary for that which is eternal. He looked to the reward, and certainly this is an eternal reward, but also as Pastor Mike preached just a few weeks ago, there's this present reward that we get to taste so often that helps us endure and live by faith. There are these foretastes all around us, gaining a heart of wisdom, receiving grace, receiving mercy, experiencing love, having peace, having enjoyment in God, family, friends, fellowship. And you know what? These riches, these treasures have no comparison, do they? No comparison. There was no competition here for Moses. Once he had eyes to see, once the Lord showed him what eternal currency looked like, the moment he got his first taste, it was over. It wasn't even close. Moses refused the life of Egypt and riches, and he embraced the suffering that would come with being a child of God. Fourth and finally, I want you to consider the true and better Moses. Pastor Mike introduced this statement to us in this series last week. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. He's the true and better sacrifice. He's the true and better Adam. 
verse 27 it says by faith Moses left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible it's a little bit like Hebrews 12 looking to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith what did Moses see that led him to refuse Egypt and embrace the people of God Moses saw a distinct view and apprehension of God in his presence power and faithfulness there was this inward testimony there was this fixed trust on him and his promises he knew that God was everywhere present with him. He knew that God was able to protect. He knew that God was able to provide. He knew that God would be faithful to his promise. And so Moses clung to this sight of God and endured courageously to the end. Moses had all the wisdom, education, looks, courage, position, power, and riches, but none of that he knew would make the difficulties of life any easier. And likewise, a thousand remedies may present themselves to our minds in seasons of trial that we cling to for relief and preservation, but ultimately they too will all prove fruitless because none of these things produce salvation or the fruit of the Spirit. As, first, or as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5, we are kept, we endure by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Moses saw the invisible God by faith. But there's a neat thing that we get to see from this side of the story. Jesus, the true and better Moses, who the New Testament says is the image of the invisible God. If you flip back a few pages in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, the author writes this, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. What do you see? Jesus is a true and better Moses. For Jesus also left his place of power. Jesus left his position. He left his privilege. He laid down his rights and he took on reproach. Jesus suffered. He was in the desert. He went against kings and kingdoms. And ultimately, Jesus was not spared. He laid down his life. And so the deliverance that Moses brought for the people of Israel was but a foretaste of the greater deliverance that Jesus would accomplish for the church through his own death and resurrection. Moses, in a way, became like the Israelites, but he could not make the Israelites like God even through the law. Jesus, however, became like us so that we could become like him. He fulfilled the law. He endured to the end. He rose from the dead. And now, as Hebrews 12 says, as the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus empowers us to refuse all that we need to refuse, to embrace all that we need to embrace, and to run with endurance the race that is set before us by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so, What's the application? Well, my, my first thing is, you know, we have this thing called Sermon Plus. It comes out on Monday or Tuesday. And we're going to talk a lot about some application of this uh, text that day. It's a little podcast. I encourage you guys to hop on and listen to that each week. Because in many ways, I'm actually just trusting that the Lord throughout this morning has been bringing application to your heart and mind and that he would continue to do so. I'll simply leave you with this, though. One of the points of the, uh, that the author of Hebrews is trying to make in Hebrews 11 is that the faith we see of the, of the saints of old is the same faith that we have received in order to walk in each and every day. As we've been saying, these stories of faith are stories to strengthen our faith. 
And so what we learn from the life of Moses is that if you want to live by faith, you're going to need to deal with your fears. You're going to need to put all of the fears and worries and anxieties of this world, all the threats, even to your good, and you're going to have to compare them to the promises of God. And then you're going to have to, by faith, not be afraid. Secondly, you're going to have to make decisions. You know, you're going to have to grow up and be an adult. You're going to have to own your faith and make it your own. Nobody else can follow Jesus for you. Nobody else can believe for you. And so like Moses, when he grew up and needed to make a decision, we all have a decision to make. And we need to remember that the devil lulls people to sleep thinking they have more time. Third, you're going to have to refuse some things. That's what faith calls you to. If you're going to be a part of the people of God, it means you're going to be distinct from the world. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, what you're going to need to refuse is up to Jesus. <laughs> it looks different in many ways for each person. Ultimately, you're going to need to lay down this desire to pursue your own kingdom, to live for yourself, and you're going to have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But how that practically works itself out, whether you should be refusing this kind of thing in your life or whether or not you should walk away from that in your life, whether or not you should walk away from this in your life, ultimately that's between you and the Lord. And it's going to take a lot of prayer, a lot of counsel. It's going to take faith. It's going to take you know, understanding what the voice of the Spirit sounds like. It's going to take engaging with Scripture. It's going to take prayer, but you're going to have to refuse some things. Next, if you want to live by faith, you're going to need to embrace some things. And those things that you're going to have to embrace are going to be sometimes hard. Reproach, suffering. But one of the beauties of it is you're embracing it with a people that are also refusing embracing some things. <laughs> one of the reasons I love the gathering, I love coming here, Pastor Mike actually during communion, he was talking about communion this morning, and he looked at me, he's like, do you remember Hebrew? And I'm like, oh boy, do I ever remember taking Hebrew. It was, you know, I definitely remember taking Hebrew and not doing well with Hebrew. My worst grade in my entire seminary degree was Hebrew. He's like, you know, if I were to tell you to say the alpha right now, I was like, I'd get an 85. He's like, if I were to tell you to give me the tenses and quizzing, I'm like, forget about it, I'm out. And he's like, exactly. Jesus doesn't want us ever to remember who he is and what he's done like we remember, like we forget Hebrew. Doesn't want us to forget. That's what I meant to say. So I love coming together on a Sunday morning, communion, remembering, hearing the word of God wash over. I mean, everything that was said this morning, you know. Most of you know, you've heard. It's good to be reminded that you need to live by faith. But one of the beauties of coming together on Sundays, moments like this, is that we get to look around the room and go, oh, there's other people refusing things and embracing things. I'm not alone. It encourages us. It strengthens us. It causes us to endure. And the final thing that you're going to need to do, and this is really kind of where I want your heart to settle as we move to a time of prayer, and then we're going to sing a prayer this morning. You're going to need to reevaluate the worth of some things in your life. The biggest thing that stands out to me about the story of Moses and his faith in Hebrews 11 is that what Moses did is he was able to go, here's everything the world has to offer. Here's everything Jesus has to offer. And by the way, to get that in its fullness, it's going to be a lot of suffering and endurance needed. And he goes, that is worth more than this. And by the way, he's kind of like Solomon in Ecclesiastes. If there's anybody who ever had experienced 
the joy of power and prestige and fame and anything that you could possibly want or be at your fingertips, it was Moses. And so I'm kind of like, I can trust a guy like that. I can trust a Solomon and Ecclesiastes who tasted and had it all and realized it's all ultimately a vapor here for a moment and gone. And so this morning, I would just encourage you to reevaluate how you are stewarding your life and encourage you by faith to step out, to refuse some things, and to embrace some things. Let's bow our heads.